This is the 10-Minute Medic, podcast for busy paramedics. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. In this particular section, we're going to take a look at why we are sparing with the amount of oxygen that we give to our cardiac patients. If you've been in EMS for any length of time, you know that there are things that we once held in high esteem as medical practices that if we did them today would constitute medical malpractice. For example, in my early career, we had a blue light in the back of the ambulance. The way that it was explained to me was that the light emitted from the blue light was calming and reduced anxiety. Now, try to tell that to anybody who's had the blue lights flipped on them while driving on any highway in any state. This blue light in the patient compartment was known as a shock light. Turning it on for patients in shock was supposed to calm them and help them deal with their shock. There were two very serious problems with this hypothesis. First, if your patient's cyanotic and you have a blue light on in the back of the ambulance, how do you know that your patient might actually need treatment? Secondly, do you really want to suppress the sympathetic nervous system action in any patient that's in compensated or decompensated shock? If you think about it, isn't that what's keeping them alive until you get them to definitive care? How about rotating tourniquets? Rotating tourniquets were introduced more than 50 years ago as a measure to decrease lift preload in patients who were in acute cardiac failure. In the late 1960s and early 70s, they were still applying rotating tourniquets to patients' extremities in an effort to manage the volume overload of decompensated congestive heart failure. The idea here was that by temporarily pooling venous blood in the extremities, the failing heart would be better able to handle its load. They were incredibly time-intensive to use since you had to loosen one tourniquet and tighten another on the patient every 15 minutes. Then we went high-tech. We purchased an automatic rotating tourniquet machine so that we could set it and forget it. Someone had the hindsight to do some research on them and found that they made no benefit to the patients in the lease. Once LASIK made its debut, tourniquets fell by the wayside. What about back valve mask? How many of you remember having only one BVM on your ambulance and it was reusable between patients? I remember cleaning BVMs after bloody traumatic cardiac arrest to get them ready to use on the next patient. I would be less than honest with you if I told you that my effort to get them thoroughly clean decreased with every minute that the clock ticked past midnight. What kind of problems would you get in today if you reused your BVM for every single patient that needed one? My question for those of you here today is, what will be your rotating tourniquets? What will be your shock light? What will be your sodium bicarbonate? What are you doing right now that we'll, we'll eventually look back on and say, wow, can you believe that was the best that we could do to manage the problem? What are you doing right now that in 5, 10, or 15 years might be considered malpractice, but today is the accepted level of care? Might it be the administration of oxygen? Now, it's important that you do ongoing research as you're listening to this particular podcast. It's important that you do not go against your protocols, but you sit down and you have discussions with your fellow paramedics, your fellow EMTs, and most importantly, your medical director. And you'll find that a common medication that we're administering to patients today in abundance may be harmful for our patients, particularly for those who are having MIs. Oxygen is a gas. We find it at a rate of about 21% in the atmosphere, and as we breathe in, we only use about 5% of it. That's the reason that we're able to make use of artificial ventilation to be so effective as far as for the patient that is apneic. However, 
recent research has shown, and by research I say over the last five years, that there's a couple of things happen that when we give high flow oxygen to the chest pain patient or the MI patient, we begin to see some negative things that are affected within the patient. First, the release of free radicals. Now, by free radicals, I'm not talking about some type of a 60s terrorist group, but basically what we're looking at are these are chemicals that have a direct relationship to the inflammatory process within the body. Research has long shown that inflammation has a direct correlation to the severity of a myocardial infarction. In fact, inflammation is often one of the earliest signs that we would see in a patient who is having some type of coronary artery disease. The release of these free radicals comes about because oxygen now comes in and takes their place. And as a result of that, these free radicals can increase the inflammatory process, thus taking a bad situation and making it worse. The second thing that we need to look at is the presence of nitrogen washout. Within your patient, when we get high flows of oxygen coming in, either through a non-rebreather or a simple face mask, nitrogen begins to be replaced by oxygen. Now, I want you to think just a minute and tell me if there is a medication that we give to chest pain patients that has the word nitrogen in it. Obviously, you know, nitroglycerin. So if you think about this, what are we doing when we are washing out nitrogen? Well, basically when we're administering nitroglycerin, what is happening is that the patient is taking the nitroglycerin in, it's changed into a gaseous form, and as it travels through the coronary arteries, it causes vasodilation, which allows more blood flow through. When we wash out the nitrogen, now basically what we're doing is we're causing vasoconstriction, which increases the workload on the heart. And this is the last thing that the heart needs. So high flow oxygen causes nitrogen washout, which results in vasoconstriction. We turn around and we give nitroglycerin and think of it in this way. If you're administering high flow oxygen at the same time you're giving nitroglycerin, you're providing an antagonistic type of situation to where your nitroglycerin is not going to be working as well. So where does that leave us with the administration of oxygen? Well, oxygen is still a good drug when used appropriately. The criteria that we're going to be using based on the American Heart Association and their research is number one, any patient who appears to be having respiratory distress gets oxygen. Any patient who has an SpO2 of less than 94% on room air gets oxygen. And any patient who tells you, regardless of whether we look at them or not, but if they tell you they're experiencing some type of respiratory distress or dyspnea or shortness of breath, they're going to get oxygen. But now here's where the critical thinking comes in. We do not want to start out with high flow oxygen like we've done in the past. Let's start them out on a nasal cannula at about two to four liters per minute, and let's see what happens in that regard. We can always increase the amount of oxygen that we're giving if it's necessary, but I think you'll find quite often that increase in administration is probably not going to, to be necessary. So to recap, number one, we're not going to give high-flow oxygen to every patient who comes in and complains of chest pain. Number two, we're going to go off the criteria of research-based if they're having trouble breathing that we can see, 
if their SBO2 is less than 94%, or if they verbalize and tell you that they feel like they're having trouble breathing. We're going to start with oxygen, and we're going to start with a low-flow oxygen, basically about 2 to 4 liters per minute via nasal cannula. Let's see how that goes. Thanks again for joining us today. Stay tuned, and we'll have another 10-Minute Medic coming up in just a very few days.